Okay, well, if you'd like to uh, turn with me to the book of Judges, and uh, particularly Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. Actually, we're going to be looking at Judges chapters 4 and 5 this morning, but we're going to kind of combine them as we go through, because they're pretty much inseparable, really. We read further on in Acts chapters, uh, chapter 13, verse 20, that it says there, and afterwards he gave to them judges uh, about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet, and afterwards they desired a king. So that's, that's the time period for the book of Judges. And it goes from the death of Joshua until Saul comes on the scene, and then David and Daniel uh, and that whole era of the kings of Israel. And as you go through the book, there's lots of conflict around. Because throughout the book, it says Israel did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. That was the Lord's perspective. So if you happen to be here this morning and you're thinking, well, what on earth has the book of Judges and ancient Israel got to do with us today? Well, the stuff that we're going to be going through today is, is bang up to date. It's bang up to date. And, and if you were to go to chapter 17, verse 6, or chapter 21, verse 25, it, it says that there, there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so much of the time as we go through the book of Judges, Israel involves themselves in the worship and the nations of the gods that they should have driven out from around them. And they, they begin to worship them. And they turn away from the true and living God. But as far as they're concerned, in their own eyes, they're doing what's right. And isn't that kind of like the society we live in today? No one wants to look to God anymore. Or, or and or to the scriptures. Or to any absolutes, really. Nobody wants to say, these are the rules, do they? No one wants to say that God is our creator. In the beginning, God. He's our saviour, he's our redeemer. And he has the right to tell us what morality is and how we should live. No one wants to hear that today, do they? Everybody wants to do what's right in their own eyes. And they say, you know, you don't step on my toes and I won't step on your toes. And everybody wants to live by their own moral standards. And everybody wants to have the right to do whatever they want to do. And that's just like the era covered by the book of Judges. So this is right up to date. It's right up to date. Now, if you were to read from the beginning of the book of Judges, just to get a bit of background here, up to this point you would have seen two judges come on the scene. First of all, you would have seen Othniel, who is the first man in the Bible upon whom it says was the Spirit of God. And then the second judge you see is Ehud, who made a two-edged sword and thrust it into Eglon, the king of the Moabites. So right at the outset of the book, we have this, this great picture of the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God. And where that is thrust in, as the Bible puts it, the dirt comes out of our lives. And I like that, you know. And it's interesting to see that because in the days we live in, we need both of those things, don't we? We need to be filled with his Holy Spirit and we need the two-edged sword 
of the word of God in our lives. Because as we look at the book of Judges, the children of Israel, they just keep wandering away from God. And these these judges, if you've gone through the book of Judges before, you'll know this, but they're not the kind that sit in a courtroom in robes. They're just ordinary folk like you and I. And God raises them up to bring the people back to him after they've gone astray. So instead of the word judges, we could call it the book of heroes, couldn't we? And I also think it's really important to understand, as we go through this, that there's a large portion of the Old Testament that's devoted to covering the demise of the offspring of the giant races that the Bible tells us lived both before and after the flood of Noah. And they were from the, the sons of God, the fallen angels who cohabited with the daughters of men and left their first estate. Uh, and, and there's an awful lot in the Old Testament about that. So, you know, those being wiped out here, they're not ordinary human beings like you and I. These are part supernatural enemies of God. So this is an us or them situation. So I think it's important for us to understand all of those things because God isn't just having his people going around just killing anyone. That's what most of the battles that we see even in King David's time, are all about. And so as we pick it up in chapter 4 today, and this second judge, Ehud, dies after they have 80 years of peace, it's no surprise then that we read in verse 1, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Harasheth of the Gentiles. Now, sadly, this, for the first time, we see the very things that they were meant to destroy and drive out of their lives. We see that they've gained such a, a foothold in their lives and that, that they're now ruling them. They're ruling over them. And again, that still happens today, doesn't it? And, and this Jabin here that we're looking at, it's not actually the name of this guy, but it's a title for the king in Hazor. It's like Pharaoh was a title in Egypt. About a hundred years before this, in Joshua chapter 11, the children of Israel had faced another Jabin who was king of Hazor then. And as we read this, it's about 200 years after they came out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And they've been delivered from the Egyptians, and now... The same God that led them through the Red Sea is delivering them into the hand of this Jabin because of their disobedience. And remember, this is the same God that we serve, the same God that you and I serve. And as we look at this and we think of our nation today, as Barry mentioned this morning already, I think we need to pray, we need to seriously pray. We need to pray for our government and for our MPs. Because... We have these scriptures, and as we read them, we, we see the character of God in operation. And we see that all the way through the book of Judges. We see the character of God in operation. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we need to pray for ourselves, too, that we will continue to seek his will in everything we do. Every little minute detail, everything we do, we need to seek the Lord because you see we don't serve him out of fear do we that's not what he wants 
Because he loves every one of us and he wants the best for us. And he wants us to love him, not fear him. He's given us the, the air that we breathe and the trees and the flowers and the sunshine and the rain and, and even the very food that we eat. But by the same token, make no mistake, nobody messes with our God. He's the creator of the universe. And deep down, we, we know what's right and wrong, don't we? And I believe that we ignore him at our peril. Our God's not to be messed with. And if we choose to ignore him like the children of Israel here, as we'll see as we go on, where every man did what was right in his own sight, it'll come back to bite us, just as it does to Israel. Because his word tells us that he's a jealous God. And he doesn't want us going after other gods, whatever that may be or whoever that may be, and serving them instead of him. So, finding themselves in this situation, a little bit of background there, finding themselves in this situation, verse 3 says, And the children of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 chariots, that's this guy Sisera, and 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time, and she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So we meet here this remarkable woman, Deborah. She's one of, I believe, only five prophetesses that are named in the Bible. Not only that, but she's a prophetess and a judge. The only other person in the Bible, I think, that wears that mantle is Samuel. So Deborah is a very, very remarkable woman whose heart is totally open to God's leading. And she had that ability to be led by his spirit, led by his spirit. And she steps into this role as a judge or a guide for Israel. And as we look at her, you know, she, she doesn't have to take out ads in the paper. She doesn't have to promote herself at all. She doesn't go begging for money on TV. She goes and she sits under a tree. And the nation comes to her. She doesn't go looking for them. And she is known for her wisdom and for her relationship with the Lord. What a thing that is, to be known for your wisdom and because you have that relationship with the Lord. And the nation of Israel comes to her for judgment and for decisions and for biblical advice. So Deborah is really a remarkable woman. Verse 6 says, And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinom, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with you ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun? Now, Deborah means bee, as in bzzz. And I don't know about you, but I kind of love bees. I, I, I don't like it that they carry a sting about with them, and I don't like it when they buzz around my head very much, but... You know, I, I, I can't eat the stuff anymore, but I love honey. I, I really love honey. Uh, and you can't have one without the other, really, can you? So, you know, I, I think bees are intelligent creatures too, and, and they're very important for pollination, of course. Uh, wasps, on the other hand, I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't see any purpose for them at all, really. Um, they kind of, I think they should all just die, you know. But, but it's a fitting name for Deborah, you see, because there's a tremendous sweetness to this woman. And as we go on, we're going to see that there's a tremendous sting to her as well. 
So I think it's a very fitting name. Her husband, a guy called Lapidoth, who lives and dies in obscurity, really, except for the fact that we hear that he's married to Deborah, his name means torches. Uh, and, and the man she sends for, this man Barak, his name means lightning. So she kind of likes fiery guys, it would seem. And in verse 7, the Lord speaks, and he says this. He says, And I will draw to you, to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into your hands. So Naphtali and Zebulun, they border on Mount Tabor. And Deborah is all the way down between Bethel and Ramah. So it's at least a week's journey away. And Deborah calls for this guy, Barak, to come down to her, And she speaks to him and she tells him to go back and gather 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and go to Mount Tabor. Now, Mount Tabor, I don't know how much you know about Israel and Mount Tabor, but it rises about 1,300 feet above the valley of Armageddon, the valley of Jezreel, where the Kishon River runs through. Kishon itself is pretty silted up today. Uh, It's not much more than just a stream, but even up to just over 100 years ago, uh, sailing ships would come into the Kishon from the Mediterranean. So at the time we're talking about here, the Kishon was a, a real river, and it would certainly overflow its banks during the rainy season, and that's important because we're going to come, we're going to see that that's going to come into play as we go on. But she says to this guy Barak, "Go to Mount Tabor, gather ten thousand men from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun, uh, and the Lord says, I will deliver Sisera into your hand." And in verse 5, And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I like this, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, then I will not go. Now, we have no way of knowing whether this guy's just a little bit chicken or, or, or what the story is here, really. Um, and, and people say, well, th- is this why God raised up Deborah? You know, because he couldn't get a man to do anything? I, I think you can make your own mind up on that, you know. But, but I think God can do whatever he wants and he can do it in the way that he wants to do it. But I'm glad he raised up Deborah. It is interesting, though, that as we get to Hebrews 11, Barak is the one that is mentioned there in the Hall of Faith as a man of faith. So, you know, I, I think that there's something else going on here. You see... It tells us in chapter 5 that not amongst 40,000 in Israel was there a spear or a shield found. So that would seem to indicate that Jabin had disarmed all the men of Israel. He'd been there for 20 years pestering them and doing all sorts of nasty things. So look, Barak, he's going to go to 10,000 of these men and he's going to say, remember they haven't got any armory, He's going to say, come with me to Mount Tabor and do battle against Sisera and the Lord's going to deliver them into our hand. And they're going to say, yeah, right. (laughs) But he knows, you see, that if he goes to Deborah, or if he goes rather to the men of Naphtali and Zebulun and say, Debs is coming too, that because she's so esteemed as a judge and a prophetess in Israel that this thing has a chance at least of getting off the ground. And I think that is what this is all about here. If you go with me, then I'm into this as well. But if you're not going, then there's no point in me going either. Verse 9, And she said, 
I will surely go with you, notwithstanding the journey that you shall take shall not be for your honour, for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Now we, we don't know, as we look at this, if, if she's even asked her husband Lapidoth about any of this, you know. Hey, are you okay with me going? I mean, it's at least a week's journey from where she is up to this area of Mount Tabor. And again, it tells us when we get to chapter 5 that the highways are so overrun with thieves and bandits that, that you couldn't even travel on the roads openly. So these are dangerous times. And I mean, what about you husbands here this morning? Imagine your wife coming to you and saying, look, you know, the Lord told me to go with 10,000 of these guys with no weapons into battle. And God's going to give us the victory. I mean, you would probably say, just just sit down here and relax. Take a few of these. They'll settle you down and I'll call the doctor, right? I mean, just just think about this. She, she's got a husband and she says to Barak, yeah, sure, I'll go with you. I mean, this is a woman of tremendous faith. This is a woman that is perhaps more of man than maybe any of the other men in Israel at this particular time. And she's prophesying here, saying, the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. That's what she says. And no doubt, Barak here, he's probably thinking, well, that woman's going to be Deborah at this point of time. Well, we'll see. She goes with Barak to Kadesh, which is over by the southern end of the Sea of Galilee about 30 miles from Mount Table. And that's, that's where the troops are going to muster, right? And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men at his feet, and Deborah went up with him. Now, if you're going to fight chariots, you want to be on a mountain, okay? You, you don't want to be on flat ground. So this is good strategy. But the thing you have to realize is, these, these 10,000 men and Barak they don't know chapters 4 and 5 of Judges, do they? They never read the book of Judges. Because it tells us in chapter 5 that the Lord fights from heaven. And he brings a tremendous storm. Josephus says there was hail and lightning. And it tells us in chapter 5 that the river Kishon that we talked about earlier, is going to overflow its banks and sweep away Sisera and his army. So the bottom line is that these guys are simply going in faith. That's what they're doing. There's no record here at all that they know anything about the storm that's coming that we read about in the next chapter. But they went nonetheless. And they weren't willing to withhold anything of themselves. And I think that's so important. They weren't willing to withhold anything of themselves in regards to serving the Lord. And I think we should take note of that. There was nothing that was too great for them to do for their God. And the Lord will say in the next chapter that Zebulon and Naphtali jeopardized their lives for the things of God. They actually put their lives on the line for God. Imagine people doing that. Putting their lives on the line to serve the Lord. So these two tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun, they, they, they went with Barak. And verse 11 says, Now Heber the Kenite 
which was of the children of Hobab, the father of Mo, uh, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent unto the plain of Zarnaim, which is by Kadesh. Now, we're being introduced to this guy Heber here in this verse because his wife um, Jael will feature later on as we go through this. And they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinom, was gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people that were with him, from Harasheth of the Gentiles to the river Kishon. So this guy, Heber, is from a family of the Kenites, which come from Hobab, who was Moses' father-in-law. And going even further back than that, they're related to Midian, who was one of Abraham's sons through Keturah, his second wife. So these are a family with Abraham's blood in their veins. And yet this man, he separates himself from the rest of the Kenites and he moves up to Kadesh by the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. And he goes and he grasses on Barak. For some reason he goes to Sisera and he tells him, hey, you know, all these guys, they're all gathered against you over near Mount Tabor. But that's okay, isn't it? Because God is using this. Back in verse 7, God said, I will draw to you, to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into your hand. Which I I think is really interesting, because evidently God also uses those who rat on others, right? (laughs) You need to remember that if somebody does something on tells on you, you know? Verse 14, it says... And Deborah said to Barak, up. I like the way she does that, up. For this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Is not the Lord gone out from before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. And the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his host with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. And it tells us in the next chapter that the rains come and that all the chariots get stuck in the mud. And when the rain falls, they get bogged down and the horses, it says, are plunging their feet in the mud and they couldn't run. And as Barak and his 10,000 men are on the sides of Mount Tabor, they can look down on the plain in front of them. Just before this, they'd heard all the hoofbeats and they'd seen the dust coming up from the dry valley. But then all of a sudden, the heavens just open up and and the water starts to just pour down and many of them are washed away. And the river Kishon begins to overflow its banks. And from their position, as they sit there on Mount Tabor, they see those that are left and they're all bogged down in the mud. And Deborah says, see, the Lord has gone before you. Because they can sit there and they see all this storm and they can see what's going on. And as they go down then into the battle, Sisera realizes he's defeated by this point. So he jumps out of his chariot and he begins to slop through the mud trying to escape. Verse 16. But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host to Harasheth of the Gentiles. And all the host of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword. And there was not a man left. Albeit, Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heba the Kenite, 
But there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Now, Sisera's problem is going to be this, right? There's peace between Jabin and Heber, but there's not peace between Jabin and Heber's wife, Jael. And you know, you, you just want to make sure if you stay at someone's house that you're not only friends with the husband, but you're also friends with the wife, okay? Because you'll see why as we go on. Verse 18 says, And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn in, my lord, turn in to me, fear not. And when he had turned in unto her, uh, into the tent, she covered him with a mantle. Now what's, what's happened here, you see, evidently, is that she's invited him into what amongst most Bedouins was the part of the tent that belonged to the women. And more properly, it was probably the harem. And for any man to enter there was upon penalty of death, unless they were invited in. So she says to him, come on in here, come on. No one's going to think of looking for you in here. And he goes in and she covers him up with a, with a, a rug or a heavy quilt. And he said to her, give me, I pray you, a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and covered him. Now, King James says that she gave him a bottle of milk, but it's not straight from the fridge, okay? This is, this is a wineskin filled with sour or curdled milk called Laban, L-A-B-E-N. And the Arabs still drink that today, by the way. Uh, it probably doesn't sound good to you. It doesn't sound very good to me either. But actually, it was a show of hospitality there. Again, he said to her, stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be when any man comes and enter, inquires of you rather, and says, is there any man here? You, you shall say no. Now, she is realizing, no doubt, that there's been a defeat. She sees the condition he's in and that he's running away and he's not in his chariot and he's not leading his army and she sees that he's afraid and he's wanting to hide himself. Then, Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it into the ground for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. He's fast asleep on the ground. She didn't need any more of an opportunity than that. And he's gone. At least we know what the last thing was that went through his mind, right? Now, I'm lightening this up a little bit because there's another message here uh, that I want to bring out. But, you know, people read this and they're aghast. They say, what in the world kind of story is this? You're listening to this this morning and you're probably thinking, you know, you can't trust these visiting speakers, can you? You know, the guy's up there and he's talking about driving tent pegs through people's heads. You know, I don't want to hear any of this. Well, see, she goes up to him softly because he's fast asleep and he's weary. And she uses a nail of the tent, it says. That's a tent peg. And again, you've got to understand that in, in, the, in this culture, even today, if you go amongst the Bedouins, it's the woman's job to take the tent down and put the tent up. I'm sorry to tell you guys after creation fest is over, but um, that's what they do. So she drives this tent peg into right through this guy's head and into the ground. And it says, so he died. I think that's pretty much a foregone conclusion, really. But, but if you, you, know, you check this out, some of these better women today, Bedouin women today, there's no trouble at all believing that they could drive a tent peg through somebody's head with just one swing of a hammer. But look, see, hey, here's the thing. The Lord is the one who said, 
I will deliver Sisera into the hand of a woman. And that's exactly what he did. And if you read the chapter before this, Ehud was a judge in Israel. We talked about him earlier. And Israel had, 50, had 80 years sorry, rest as a result of his ministry. But when he killed King Eglon, there was deception involved there too. He went in, into Eglon's summer house and, and he, in order to get in there, he, he said to Eglon, I've got a message for you, let me in. Well, this was a message that Jael had for Sisera. She just didn't wake him up to tell him about it. So, so he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And when he came into her tent, behold, Sisera lay dead, and the nail was in his temples. So God subdued on that day Jabin, king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now, in chapter 5, we get to the song that Deborah wrote as a result of all of this. And all scholars agree that this is one of the most beautiful records that we have of ancient Hebrew poetry. And it's a psalm written by Deborah. So I just want to look at this very briefly because this is why I, well certainly one of the reasons I want to look at this passage this morning. In the first part of chapter 5, Deborah tells us about what God had done for Israel in this battle. And he also goes through some of the history, the way God has led Israel in times gone by. And it goes on to tell us about how God sent this tremendous storm which caused the Canaanites to get stuck in the mud with their chariots and they were defeated. So if we pick it up in verse 6 of chapter 5, Deborah says this. It says, or it says this rather, she writes this poem. She says, um, in the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were unoccupied and travellers walked through the byways. The inhabitants of the villages ceased. They ceased in Israel until that I, Deborah, arose. That I arose a mother in Israel. So it's interesting to look at these verses. It says, in the days of jail, the highways were unoccupied and the travellers walked through the byways, which means they walked off the beaten track so that they wouldn't be seen by the robbers. And it says the inhabitants of the villages ceased. They couldn't even build small communities without walls. They ceased in Israel, it says, until the I, Deborah, arose. The I arose a mother in Israel. Just look at that. See, I believe that this woman is amazed at herself, really, at what's happened here. She says, I lived in a society that was defunct. It had had it, basically. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. I lived in a society where the streets were violent. I lived in a society where seems, things seemed to be going from bad to worse. Where it looked like even, the, you know, that just the whole thing was lost until I, she says, Deborah, even I, a mum, stood up. That's what she's saying. And I think she's saying it in total amazement. 
As God looks down at this woman, he says, she's a prophetess. She's a judge. She's a military commander. She's a psalmist. But as Deborah looks at herself, much like David, she says, all of this started when I, even I, who am I? Deborah, a mother in Israel, stood up. Well, somebody has to stand up. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for those whose hearts are perfect towards him, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. Ezekiel 22.30 says, And I look for a man, a human being, not for a program, not for a movement, not for a drama group, for a man or a woman. You see, God looks for an individual. She says, I, Deborah, there's your qualification, a mum, a mum. That's your qualification. What's your qualification? You're filled with the Spirit. You're, you're blood-bought. The living Christ is in, in your heart. You know, Jesus said that he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. And, and there were reasons for that, but the Lord knows what he can do with a mum or a dad or a grandma or a granddad or a student that is willing to stand up. And I think Deborah, you know, when she saw the condition of the nation she was living in, and she looked into the eyes of her own children, I think she looked to heaven and she said, God, anything, anything, my heart and my life are an open check, Lord, you write out the amount. Lord, anything you tell me to do, anything, I'll do it. And then as she writes this song of thanksgiving, in verses 15 and 16, she writes about those who helped in this battle. And let me tell you something. I think this is so important as we look at the battle we are involved in today. And we are in a battle, right? Hello? Right? We're in a battle. It says... In verse 15 of chapter 5, And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, even Issachar, also Barak. He was sent on foot into the valley. For the divisions of Reuben, there were great thoughts of heart. And then she says, Why do you abide among the sheepfolds to hear the bleatings of the flock? What are you doing just sitting there listening to the sheep bleating? And she says, For the divisions of Reuben... There were great searchings of heart. Deborah says, oh, Reuben was around all right. The tribe of Reuben, you know, they thought about getting involved. Reuben thought about joining the battle. There were those who were willing to lay down their lives for the Lord, whilst Reuben, well, they had great searchings of heart. But they didn't do anything. And you know, there are Christians like that, aren't there? They spend their whole life saying, well, you know, I, I really should get involved. I really should make a greater commitment. 
I really should give more than I do. I really should try harder. I should be sold out for the Lord, really. Deborah says, well, Reuben. You know, with Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. But that's all there was. Just great searchings of heart. And then in closing, verse 23 is interesting because it says, Curse you, Meroz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse you bitterly, the inhabitants thereof, because they came not to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Now, the curse of Meroz was placed on those who were unwilling to get involved. We have no idea what the curse of Meroz actually was, but the curse obviously worked because it's not there now. And again, there are Christians that are going to be pew potatoes for the rest of their lives because they are never going to get involved. They're just going to sit in their pews and watch everybody else do it. They're never going to give their whole life to Christ. Or oh, they want fire insurance. You know, they don't want to go to hell. They want Jesus to be their saviour. But they're not willing to look to heaven and say, Jesus, anything. Whatever you want me to do, I will do it. And it says here that they pass off the scene like the inhabitants of Meroz without a trace. Who were they? Who knows? They're gone. And then chapter 5 finishes at the end of verse 31 by saying, And the land had rest 40 years. You know, there are individuals, the, the Corrie Ten Booms, the Joni Erickson Tardas, the Chuck Smiths, that, that are willing to say, Lord, here I am, send me. Let me step into the battle. And however grand, however small, God records that. And there's a blessing for those, he says here, who are prepared to give themselves willingly, and that's important, willingly, to the things of God. And as you, you know, when you look around you today, I don't know about you, but doesn't the present situation in the UK that we have today drive you out of your mind? I mean, you watch the news every day, you must, you must feel something. Well, remember this. You know, that worldliness that bothers you is the same world that God loved. And you all know the scripture, for God so loved the world. The world that's driving us crazy. That he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And you know, God remarkably wants us to be his hands and his feet. And like we see here in these scriptures, he wants us to come to the help of the Lord. Because I believe God loves this nation still. And I believe that God is more broken hearted about it than you are. But remarkably, he's chosen human beings like you and me to serve him. To serve him. I mean, he could just rip the sky open, couldn't he? And, and just shout, you, everybody down there, if you don't accept Jesus, you're all going to go to hell forever. And then close it up again. He could do that. But he's chosen to use you and I. I mean, think about that. 
Certainly, that's a total mystery to me. I mean, if I was him, I wouldn't use me. I wouldn't use you either, probably. But that's what God has done. But you see, the glory of God, the glory of the gospel is in earthen vessels. And it says so that the glory may not be of man, but of God. And just like he did with Deborah and Barak that we've been reading about this morning, he's chosen us, he's chosen you and me to come to the help of the Lord. And it's no good just having searchings of heart. Question is, what will you do about it? Question is, what will you do? Let's bow our hearts to pray. Father God, we just thank you now for your word to us this morning. Father, we pray that you will just take us and use us this week for your glory. Father, help us to have servants' hearts, each one of us, Father. And Father, we thank you too that we're never too old and it's never too late to be used by you. So Father, we pray that as we leave this place, that you will just speak to our hearts and allow us to serve you this week in whatever way you seem fit and Father we also pray that you will open doors for us in that regard so that we might be able to be witnesses for you not just in the things that we say but also and this is very important Father also we pray that you will give us the wisdom and the wherewithal to be witnesses by the way we live our lives And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. God bless you.